Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 9th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. More than an uh, Article 5 convention watch this week, likely today, the full House, U.S. House of Representatives is voting on the Save the Internet Act. Probably a good idea to weigh in on your preferences around internet neutrality. I know I'm feeling the jam up with my current service and uh, how my monthly bill keeps creeping upward. Service down escalator and the fees are up on the ups, up escalator. Today on our show, Joe Giever with Residents for Responsible Desalination will provide an activist tutorial on all those desalination plants in place or proposed along the California coast. We'll really be concentrating on the Huntington Poseidon. Then presenting for our consideration is Kimberly Dong with the anatomy of a researcher and a spokesperson. To bend an old adage, water issues everywhere and not a moment to squander. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Joe Giever with Residents for Responsible Desalination to provide, as I said, an activist tutorial on those desalination plants. Poseidon is the the main contractor, and we should say owner, we'll talk about that, that are proposed along the California coast. Joe Giever's first work before finishing high school was as a commercial fisherman. In his 40s, he resumed his formal education, completing his bachelor's degree in economics, then a law degree at the University of Virginia. After law school, Joe worked for Surfer Rider Foundation and worked on coastal zone management and marine living resources management. That's actually my past kind of experience, coastal zone management stuff. He represented the environmental community during consideration of regulations to be promulgated for the coastal power plants and seawater desalination facilities. Having retired in 2014, he now works part-time as an environmental consultant on the proposed Poseidon-Huntington desalination plant, the main topic of today's interview. Joe Giever joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Joe. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, everybody's going to pass the desalination quizzes today with all your help. So let's start. So desalination or seawater reverse osmosis is a process that it removes salts, minerals, and biological organic compounds, turning seawater into potable, drinkable water. So that's that's a lot to remove, and that's a concern what that removal is and where it goes. And we're going to talk about how some of these proposals or the pre already approved projects are dealing with overseeing compliance with how those that that byproduct of the reverse osmosis, how it's the impacts of that byproduct on the surrounding environment, seawater and on land. So there were at one time there were 20 desal plants proposed in California. In preparation for this interview, you were saying there aren't as many. What happened to the ones that are no longer in the running? 
Well, I think a lot of uh, these jurisdictions just kind of put it on their alternatives and, you know, with further consideration, they dropped it from their alternatives. So there are because, a handful left. Yeah. Because, I mean, they were penciling it out for one? Well, yeah, the cost is a big driver for these water agencies. The The cost of these desal facilities is twice what you would pay for imported water, even in Southern California. So, you know, we have a lot of environmental concerns about the way they do these things, but for them, the cost was the driver. Okay. So we're going to keep those factors all along as we're talking about the processing of the proposal here. So a brief history. It's the, the one in Carlsbad is the largest in not just along the coastline. It's the largest in the country. Uh, they say the Western Hemisphere. So, yeah, I think that's so, right. Wow. That project casts quite the shadow over the Huntington Poseidon project. So it's the same vendor. It's so is the vendor the proper term to use? They're, they're selling their product to the water district managers. So Poseidon is kind of a financier. They're not really the engineers or the construction firm. They contract all that out, but they provide the financing for these water agencies. Okay. So how long has the Carlsbad plant been online? So I think they started it up in like December 2015. It's been online for a few years. Okay. And the term uh, for their, the, the obligation for the Carlsbad, for the, the southern San Diego region, the term, is it uh, comparable to what they're applying for for Huntington, the roughly 30 years? Or is it uh, longer? Yeah, so that has changed a couple of times in Huntington. It was 30, then 50, then we, so we're not sure what that's going to end up being, but at least 30. And that's something to keep our eyes on. It's a huge obligation to for that. So it's ongoing performance and compliance. I've, I've got a chance to listen to some of the California Coastal Commission sort of uh, an excerpt that you all provided online to see that there people are flagging the compliance with the terms for the Carlsbad desalination plant in terms of the the complying with the concentrated, I'm going to break it down like they described it, concentrated brine, chemical pretreatment, chlorine and coagulants. That's a lot of stuff <laughs> to meet a standard that's that's always has a, it's consequential in the water column as well as on shore. Well, that's right. A lot of that stuff ends up in the discharge. So it goes into our wastewater stream and eventually into the ocean. And those complications kind of impact the reliability of that facility. These things are fine-tuned machines. And so when they start them up, they have to do some adjustments to make sure that well, this is complicated. But Please the, do. But the RO filter is a... Reverse fairly, osmosis. Yeah, reverse osmosis, that membrane is fairly fragile, right? So there's a huge pre-filtration system to get solids out of the source water before it gets into that valuable membrane and can damage the membrane, right? Which they're super expensive membranes. You don't want to replace them more often than you have to. So adjusting that pre-filtration takes time and it meant that the Carlsbad facility has been shut down a number of times it's meant that they have exceeded their discharge limits several times it's complicated to fine-tune these what things. do you mean by they've exceeded their discharge oh it, oh they're discharging 
off-site, they're providing more waste than, than than they were permitted to do. So what happens? Are Is there a fine for that, Joe? Or, or well, so they haven't fined them. They've been giving them kind of opportunities to fine-tune that thing and get those discharges within the limits they're allowed, which is fairly common with these desal facilities. They are complicated machines. And I guess I'll throw in here Go one ahead. thing. Because these are such large facilities, they need huge volumes of seawater to operate, right? Right. Smaller facilities can operate, well... Like, they know, use them on cruise ships, right? Aren't there RO facilities on cruise ships? Yeah, Navy ships. The little tiny ones. Right, but right, but right. this is the... We're talking about this sizable one. So another plan that's going through the process, the final stages of getting permits, is up in Monterey. And it's a relatively, well, comparatively smaller. It's like more like... 10 million gallons a day instead of 50 and they can use they get their source water from underneath the seafloor and the seafloor itself provides that prefiltration so oh so you it's a different model that prefiltration system that they're trying to tweak in Carlsbad is really energy intensive and requires all these chemicals for coagulation like that stuff you were mentioning that drives a lot of the price the energy demand of these facilities drives the price. And so if you can use these sub-seafloor intakes, you eliminate all that chemical discharge, you reduce the energy demand of the facility. And important for us, if you're withdrawing your, sea f- your source water from under the seafloor, you eliminate the marine life mortality from the intake. Right. So, yeah. How which ba- is a big part of the regulation. So the biota we were talking about in the beginning here, how how big a critter goes through, gets trapped in in that filtering there, gets through? So most of these are relatively small eggs and larvae. But that adds up. Early life stage. Right? right. So you're taking those out of the natural ecological system. Correct. Right? That's Yeah. yeah. That's the, the input is a problem, too. Yeah. That's yeah. a significant impact. It's a nursery coming in. they passed laws back in the 70s to eliminate those, to regulate those seawater intakes, right? Right. And so is it because of the size of the Carlsbad, that they're, they're not able to consider this technology that you're talking about as being used in the Monterey facility? Well, so, well, we don't know. Uh, Poseidon's plan was to co-locate with these coastal power plants that were already withdrawing seawater to cool their generators and to use the discharge from the power plant as their source water. And we warned them way back in the, you know, early in the uh, decade that those cooling water intakes were likely to be prohibited soon and that plan of using the coastal power plants water wouldn't be available in the near future that has happened so these power plants are just completely rebuilding the power plant so they don't have to rely on seawater anymore poseidon has not changed their plan now they want to use the intake that has been prohibited for the power plant as a standalone intake just for the desal facility, they just don't adjust to <laughs> what we have been telling them for decades. This is not a viable plan, and they refuse to adjust. That is what's complicating the permitting process, is that they insist on using these open ocean intakes that kill marine life when there are better alternatives. 
Well, what do you attribute this lethargy of uh, adaptation in theirs? I mean, it's such a consequential in, uh, public infrastructure. What what's the what's is it just they think that it's a it's a matter of playing cards well, in so in the poker game of uh, sort of you know staring down. Well, there is a little bit of that. I mean, it has turned into that. But like I said, these are financiers, right? They had a business model that relied on these open ocean intakes. They proposed cookie cutter. They were selling yeah. these desal plants, 50 MGD, co-located with a power plant up and down the coast. They only got two takers, the one in Carlsbad and the one in Huntington. Their business plan apparently doesn't allow them to adjust, right? They are, in effect, um, well, water agencies are a monopoly. And because right. Poseidon is selling the water to them on a take-or-pay contract, right, they are a monopoly. Right. With a huge return on that investment, they're getting like, I don't know, 11 12% return on that investment when it is a guaranteed return. It right. It's a crazy amount of profit. And the Carlsbad wouldn't pencil out without the subsidy from, is it federal subsidy and state subsidies for the Carlsbad project? Well, it means that the ratepayers would be paying more for that water. Yeah. I mean, we are paying for it through our taxes because those subsidies have to come from somewhere, but it, it doesn't show the state up. The state taxes and federal taxes, yeah, yeah. both? Well, so federal taxes pay for a lot of research, state and the bigger regional wholesale district that provides some subsidies. But it, you know, money doesn't just come out of thin air. It comes out of your pocket sooner or later. So the claim that Poseidon makes is that they're always drought-proof. And you're saying in the case of the Carlsbad project, they've, they went offline up to five times since 2015? So I don't know how many times they did that. But that, so when they sell their water for two or three times what the alternative is, right. the way they sell that idea is that it's reliable, as if what we have now is not reliable. We, we've never really run out of water yeah. before. Climate change is kind of challenging the system that we have now. Things are getting warmer and drier during the dry periods and much more wet during the wet periods. And so we definitely have to adjust to make sure that the system we have is still reliable with all these changes. And there are think tanks that are proposing what those adjustments look like more conservation, recycling wastewater, capturing stormwater when we have these huge storm events like we did this year. Right, right. right. That's all getting rethought. This yeah. is the future, right? It's we're present. We're going to get rain, <laughs> and we're going to get a lot of it, but it's kind of like the past. We will always have, you know, in California, I mean, a drought emergency is almost kind of silly. We have always had every decade seven or eight years that are dry and two or three that are extremely wet, that pattern is just getting more exacerbated, right? It's, right. The pattern is the same. It's just... Concentrated. Like pattern on steroids or whatever you would okay. call that, right? So we have to adjust the way we manage water, right, to adapt to that. It's always been reliable, and these think tanks are f proposing ways to... In adapt so that it will continue to be reliable so paying three times more for desal 
just because it's reliable? Well, that is the question. That is, is what voters yeah. that put people into these water management agencies have to answer, really. Is, is it worth that cost? Not to mention the harm to the environment. For those of you that have just joined us, my guest is Joe Giever, environmental consultant activist, talking about the proposed Poseidon-Huntington desalination plant. And well, the Orange County Water District, is, has there's 10 people that are members of that district that would be in a position to review the, the Poseidon-Huntington desalination proposal. Eventually, yeah, we'll get to that front time. Okay. But th- but that's that's the body, and it's as when I just checked into a, a little bit of the the background recently, that there are. I mean, I it's always the Santa Margarita. They're so retro. I met I met one of their board members, and he's a climate skeptic, and I couldn't. I thought, man, this guy's had the levers of this district for years. He's a veteran district. And they're the first ones that jumped on this Poseidon project. They're on it, and Mesa's in on that. But the Irvine Ranch Water District is dead against this whole Poseidon project. Yeah, that's right. Irvine Ranch Water District is kind of proposing these alternatives that these think tanks are suggesting are the way to adapt. And then there's the Golden State Waters in opposition. So then there's going to uh, be—there's four— Four members that are sort of undecided about this, but we've got we've got permitting and all that to go in advance of their consideration. So we are looking at the well, I want to I'm going to go back to Poseidon using that kind of poker dynamic. Are they relying on the A-listers, politically speaking, to provide a mantle of confidence in this proposition at Poseidon Huntington. I mean, I, do you can you tell us why are these people signing on to the Poseidon project? Barbara Boxer, Kevin DeLeon. I can't name them all. I just those two always come to mind. And well, Barbara Boxer had a huge Orange County Register opinion piece about what three months ago. Yeah. So Barbara Boxer has been a desal proponent. But why? At the federal level, you yes, know, funding research and trying to develop this stuff so it's a little bit more economic. Since she's been out of office, she has been working for Poseidon as a, you know, spokesperson or whatever. So, is she a spokesperson? She a lobbyist? Um, well, which both. definition? Yeah, she meets both. that she, definition. I mean, she shows up at some of these decision hearings, and I'm sure she's doing some lobbying behind the scenes. It was not though in her Orange County Register opinion piece. There was no mention of her formal role with that, and I, you know, I bust her for that. That. That was pretty disingenuous. Oh, so she used her environmental mantle. Is. She did not use her up uh, her lobbyist mantle. Oh, I don't. So I don't it was. Know I looked carefully. Is. I don't think that's a big secret. Uh, it's not, but it, it should have been in there, though. Yeah, could in be, that yeah. bio you always get at the bottom of the editorial. It was missing. Right, and you know, Poseidon does a lot of its own, you know, campaign contributions to these decision makers, and so you know they. They are a corporation. They behave pretty much like any other corporation. And it's pretty easy to capture these small water districts. Like you said, <laughs> Santa Margarita. People don't really pay attention to those elections, right? You can get, well, God only knows how those people get into office. But small contributions for those elected seats are a big deal, right? Does. Your group, the R4RD, responsible for reliable development, do you all fan out at uh, election time to give people some ideas about who? Because I know a lot of people in my circle, talking to you, University Hills, are uh, not 
clear on which candidates they should be supporting. So do you get involved in some of that too? No. So we are a non-profitable charitable organization and you're prohibited from doing those electoral kind of but in, uh, but informally, you're probably tapped for that Well, I'm bad sure pun. the members are, you know, they are on top of this stuff and recognize the... So it's important. People, when we talk about voting down ticket, this is like the bottom of the ticket to vote on those districts. They, they, have, they can commit us to massive capital improvement obligations. Oh, this, this being one of the massive ones, uh, for sure. Yeah. But uh, one of... Uh, so... I mean, interestingly enough, I don't really follow politics, but one of uh, Poseidon's main advocates on the Orange County Water District board lost his reelection last time to a guy who is not a big fan of Poseidon. So So something's happening. Okay, traction there. Well, so what's the 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 most pressing review? The the most imminent permit being considered at this point for the Poseidon Huntington, I guess is the term. So the first one is with the Regional Water Quality Control Board, and they their mandate is to regulate the intake and reduce marine life mortality and to regulate the discharge for pollution control. So they've got kind of two tasks that they're looking at that because of this pre-filtration consideration kind of intertwined. Sure. Yeah. And are, are they looking at the Carlsbad record? Is that is that useful? You know, I don't know. Uh, so probably, but that Carlsbad record is fairly common. I mean, these things take time to tweak. As a matter of fact, the first one Poseidon built was in Tampa Bay. And okay, how how far back was that? That was probably in the 90s. Okay. And the engineering firm that they hired for that project was not really up to the task. That thing, because of the flawed prefiltration system, kept shutting down and breaking down, and it was a nightmare. There was a series of bankruptcies and ratepayers really paid through the oh. nose until the water agency just had to get rid of all these people and get somebody new in there that knew what they were doing. So in San Diego, the water agency insisted that they got these pros from Israel that had more experience. And, yeah, they do know, have the state of the art for sure. Yeah, that's right. They're and, in the desert, yeah. But nonetheless, these things are tricky. They're sure. specific. You have to tweak them. So that those complications are pretty foreseeable. So when will the Santa Ana Regional Water Quality uh, control board be looking at this the- so we expect a draft permit in july which would be available for public comment after july yeah and then the hearing would probably be in october okay these they have set these deadlines before and they keep slipping because going back <coughs> going later because Poseidon is asking for so many exceptions to the rule, you got to find makes out it a really complicated process. Right? A moving target. Yeah. So these subsea for intakes, these intakes that are below the seafloor, if you just do that, the permitting process is relatively straightforward. But the regulations allowed exceptions to that rule, and they are trying to argue every exception they can 
to keep using these open ocean intakes that kill marine life. So it's complicated. It keeps getting pushed back because they refuse to comply with the best way forward. So are plastics part of the um, the materials that are coming into those filtration? Oh, I'm sure. Everything. Because it's all sizes plastic. Because it's all break. The big pieces are breaking down. So that's so that's sort of like they that they need to talk to each other. Like the producers of the plastics, that that massive contribution in the in the water column, and the ones that are trying to engineer the proper filtration for the in intake. Yeah. I, well, so there are so many different sizes. I mean, before you get to that reverse osmosis membrane, right, you right. have to pretty much the early filters, even the smallest solid from the source water, which is why that reverse osmosis is the same technology they use for recycling wastewater, but the solids have all been removed from wastewater in the sewage treatment plant, right? So it's a fraction of the cost to use the same technology to purify wastewater as it is to purify seawater. It's not a technology. I mean, the technology is usable. It's what, how they're how using it. And how right. expensive. So then after that, well, because I'd like to have you come back again and, and tell us where, what we need to do when the, the permitting, the next phases are coming up. The California Coastal Commission will be reviewing. Are they the very, very last? I'm understanding from your organization. They're the last ones to sign off on this? Well, so <clears throat> pretty much from the state agencies, they would be the last state agency. But then Orange County Water District hasn't really decided what they would do with this water if they bought it. They don't have a distribution plan. Really? So that will what? take another whole CEQA documentation and another round of kind of permitting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, OCWD is behaving very strange. They haven't even signed off on a contract to buy the water. They're refusing to do that until after per Poseidon gets the permits. Well, that, I mean, well yeah, there's a logic. They assume that Poseidon is going to get their permits and go through this water purchase agreement, but but they're not, which is complicating the permitting process. These guys, the reason it's taking so long to get these state permits is because they just won't follow the easy path, right? One of the... One of they the, being Poseidon. Yeah. To keep well, tweaking. OCWD now. Okay. Because one of the parts of the permit is you have to use these subsurface intakes unless you can prove a demand for the water, an absolute need for the water. Well, OCWD, because they won't go through this process of purchasing the water, they really can't show that. It's complicating the permit that they're waiting to get. Well, and if I understand correctly that... In the case of the Irvine Ranch Water District, there's the, the it's the Strand Ranch, Kern County store that it's that the Orange the Irvine Ranch Water District is counting on, and it's cheaper. I mean, it just doesn't. It's much cheaper than the Poseidon alternative. So I guess with all these different kinds of directors on the Orange County Water District, they're all they all have different levels of motivation for penciling out and uh, designing a, a distribution system they're just I mean they're just not in they're all of a different mind about whether the Poseidon is an operating program for them proposition that's right 
And that Irvine, that thing Irvine Ranch Water District is proposing is one piece of the puzzle. Right. But that is a climate adaptation plan, right? Yes. When you get these this heavy rainfall, you need to get it into groundwater storage where it doesn't evaporate when the weather gets warm and even warmer, right? Wow. So, but Orange County has a huge groundwater base and they could do that locally too. Right. right. But, but that competes with Poseidon at a much cheaper price, but it, well, it begs the question, why aren't you doing the cheaper alternative? It begs that question. Right. Do you have an answer? I do not. But I got to wow. tell you, just from my experience, when you look at these economic situations like this and you can't make any sense about out of it, invariably it's because money is changing hands someplace where you can't see it, right? But, I mean, yeah, that's so, the thing. I mean, that's a broad, I don't mean to be too accusatory or whatever, but you've got, somebody has got to step up and make sense out of this thing. So this is, uh, this is water for all of Orange County. This is why you're here on Ask a Leader to, to bring, put this on people's radar. What's the best way, Joe, Giver to follow what you all are activating here because there's been like a cadre of people that have been committed to following this whole project so what's the best way to follow you well so one thing it's actually not for all of Orange County in South Orange County they're proposing a smaller facility at Dana Point that will use subsurface intakes which means that the environmentalists ha don't have a problem with that it lowers the cost because they don't need all that expensive pre-filtration. So the rate payer pushback is nowhere near as as vociferous as what's up happening in Orange County Water District. So there are ways to do this stuff. It's still expensive and you shouldn't do it unless you've got an absolute need. But South County has an argument that they do have an absolute need. Look, I... Nobody is strictly opposed to desalination, but it is not the right option if there are better alternatives out there, and there are. Well, yeah, and I, I full disclosure is that I'm involved with a, a closed-loop solution that is a distributed water proposition, and there's this whole centralization of the water issue is... For me, a, a conventional fix that I think we can even think more expansively and look at closed loop, and I, I keep bringing that up when I have other activists on, so I want yeah, people to think about that. Distributed water and energy. It's, that is a <laughs> huge really adaptation. Is In every way. Good. Conservation, yeah. recycling, rainwater retention, it's all should be distributed. Well, Joe, we can have you back again when we're moving along through the next permitting process. I'm going to have you on a fast dial and you can come back and say, here's where we are, here's what needs to happen with office holders. Sure, it's okay. a pleasure meeting you. I'd love to come okay, back. Okay, very good. I'm glad you do that. Joe Giver is my guest, environmental consultant, activist, talking about the proposed Poseidon Huntington desalination plant. We'll be right back with Kimberly Duong with the anatomy of engineering and a public spokesperson. Stay tuned. Thank you for staying tuned. That's one of my... Uh, this is a homeland track from South Africa. 
Simon Ngobeni Aswi Lulumangani. So, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Kimberly Duong, and she is a PhD candidate at UCI's School of Engineering. And she's co-founder of Climatepedia and regular contributor to Science Policy Group. Raised in Sacramento, Kimberly completed her Bachelor's of Science in Atmospheric, Oceanic, Environmental Sciences at UCLA, her Master's of Science in Civil Engineering and Water Resources Engineering at UCI, and working in the interdisciplinary fields of hydrology, water resources, and science policy. Her focuses are on urban drought management in Southern California. She'll complete her PhD this September, and I want everybody to listen closely because she is a candidate. We'll be going out on the the workforce at that time. If not, maybe a little earlier. I don't know how that happens sometimes when you're defending and applying at the same time. Amby Dexter said, she is a Voices for Science advocate for the American Geo Physical Union and a Mircean 2018 Science and Technology Policy Fellow for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. She also founded the Climatepedia Student Certificate Program and the UC Irvine Student Chapter and is a member of, as I've summed the, the uh, American Geophysical Union 100, Advancing Earth and Space Science. She brings a special vibe that I enjoyed at her recent science policy group talk honed at auspicious opportunistic occasions like Nerd Night presenting for our consideration the anatomy of a researcher and a spokesperson. She joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Kimberly Duong. Thank you, Claudia. That was quite an introduction. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, you are, you're like the model. You're, I want people to t- sort of get to enjoy what I have. It's some of your presentations here. And so let's first, let's launch with the, uh, you talking briefly about your current research to give our listeners an idea about the work you're conveying to all kinds of audiences. So uh, my current research is working with the Irvine Ranch Water District, and uh, it was an important part of my dissertation to work collaboratively and to do applied research. So I reached out to them around 2016 to see if there was a partnership that we could uh, foster. And basically, I work with them to uh, try to improve their uh, outdoor water conservation programs and just in general, seeing if there's any way that a research perspective could help them um, either improve the projects or to make those analytics more useful to them in the future. So I'm sorry you were, weren't able to sit in with us in the session when we're talking about the, the desal project, because I, I know that your the the jurisdictions uh, are complete circle Venn diagram of overlapping what you're working on and what, what Joe Giever has been activist in making the case that there's better fixes than the Poseidon Project. So what occurs to me because of getting involved or watching the midterm elections, I was more and more in contact with science or with STEM researchers that are working on up in their communications game. And I'm, you know, 314, I think, might have been created as a result of the 
2016 electoral outcomes. I think it's pretty new, but it seems to me that there's more and more researchers that are spending more time on their communications. Is that something that you're um, you're tapping into? You're you're finding palpable there. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's a, an upward trend of scientists and researchers becoming more involved with the political process or just being more engaged. Uh, and there was a huge number of, um, I mean, Katie Porter now is representing our district. And so uh, as a UCI professor, I think that's pretty amazing feat and very rare uh, when it look when it comes to our, our historical um, representation of scientists in our political process. But uh, in terms of my personal experience, I've always been um, really passionate about having communication be a really important part and probably an equal part um, of my role as a scientist, you know, compared to the research itself. And do you find that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of appraisals that scientists sort of innate sort of skeptical the skepticism of a science researcher that's 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 the dna of a research you've got to be skeptical you can't just sign on to what you think is the the answer the solution but you're learning that that skepticism has to be tweaked in a different way so that you have a very accessible message that sounds the kind of alarm that you're registering with what the trends are in the resource management and, and on to the larger climate situation. Right. So the language in science is, is conservative. And in terms of quantifying the results, scientists love to say things like, uh, there's a confidence interval, there's a margin yeah. of error. Those are all things that are just due diligence for us to report. But in terms of communicating the overall bottom line or, you know, what's the takeaway message, those are not the best terms to use when communicating with the public. And so I've done a lot of work in terms of translating jargon, trying not to use words that are very technical or have uh, double meanings between science and the general public. One of them that comes to mind is a scheme. So <laughs> a water a water rate scheme might be something like um, water pricing structure or just a system, you know, a, some kind of system with a structure. And I got a comment back from a collaborator at a water agency saying, I don't I don't know if we should use the word scheme because it sounds like we're up to no good. Um, <laughs> and uh, that just that just made us laugh because I was, of course, you know, like I didn't even think of it in that context. And right. so sometimes it just takes a, a moment to step back and think about, OK, what could this word be interpreted as versus what did we mean it to be in science? So you used a system, the word system for that or? some other we, I think we used um, pricing structure okay or something yeah, yeah more explicit right and that's there's no biasing there's no there's no yeah there's no, no compromise there's, in terms of what we what we mean it's just a, a jargon word that we're you know trying to avoid miscommunicating the message for so Climatepedia that you co-founded here you you first were involved with that at UCLA that's and right. then here so then and you got it started at UCI. So who, for anybody who still hasn't heard about Climatepedia, who are you trying to get involved in, with that group? So right now, um, we do a lot of different, we have a lot of prongs to our organization. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that I started with uh, some friends of mine back at UCLA about eight, nine years ago. 
and uh, it grew from the UCLA branch. Now my colleagues are in D.C., in Pennsylvania, all over the country, really. Um, wow. So we have we have multiple types of projects. One of the most major projects is what we call the Tyndall Petition. Yes. Um, and John Tyndall, we named it after him. He's a scientist that had discovered uh, the greenhouse gas effect and things like that. So it's just uh, the name that we use to to represent a statement that we've created. And that statement, which has been vetted by a lot of climate scientists that we've worked with before, it basically says that climate change is real. It's happening. It is not going away. And if we want to mitigate the worst consequences, we have to act now to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. I think it's a pretty straightforward um, statement. It doesn't it doesn't really convey that we have any policy leanings towards how to address that. And we ask academics, uh, PhD level accredited climate change experts, not necessarily just scientists, but right. experts right. in different fields. And we ask them to sign on to the statement virtually. And for every single signatory, that's what we call them, we have a profile. And the importance of that is is really high because a lot of times in mass media, you might get one climate skeptic and one believer on the screen. And it's like a one-to-one representation. Right, right. They that literally have yeah. 50% of the screen. And so what we wanted to show is that, you know, these are the faces, these are the people behind the scientific consensus of why climate change is happening now. And we know that it is. These are the people. This is the authority that packs this punch. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And that KUCI is in handles all over the social media. I don't have to go through all of those. And my guest is Kimberly Duong, a UCI engineering PhD candidate, deeply involved in communicating the messages around climate and on on resource management. There's there's all aspects to her, the the water and drought management work that she's doing. So during your three-month residency in Washington, D.C. as a Mircean Fellow at the National Academies last year, one of your banner accomplishments was Nerd Night. Tell us about what you did. So I, I did the National Academies Fellowship, which is completely separate from this Nerd Night event, I should uh, clarify. And while I was there, I was in D.C. and they were <laughs> <laughs> they were asking me, hey, is there anything you'd like to do here? Uh, maybe... <laughs> maybe something that you'd like to do that you can only do in D.C. So I said, I'd like to do a public speaking event about climate change. You just thought, I'd like to, you just thought that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great platform. There's lots of cool, powerful people in D.C. And I thought, what a better place to do it. I mean, um, so I got in touch with Nerd Night through an organization that I'm part of. It's called 500 Women Scientists, actually. Yes, yes. STEMnists. Yeah. So they uh, had a an event, I think it was March 2018, and it just so happened to be that they were asking for members to volunteer and be part of this Nerd Night event. And if, for people who don't know, Nerd Night is an organization. They host entertaining science nerdy bar talks everywhere or just they're only in the nation's capital they're very active in dc I we believe, gotta get them here yeah i believe they Let's have start it i think they have a branch in la but they do 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but it's very active in D.C., very popular. Um, so I signed up and I did the talk. It was really fun. I did not expect so many people. It was over 200 people wow. crammed into this tiny room. Honestly, I couldn't even get through to get on stage. And um, the reception was great. Uh, I did a quick little talk about when I went to meet with some climate change denying Republicans about supporting a carbon tax bill, although that's not what we called it. Um, but it was an entertaining experience. And so I wanted to share that with people and maybe give a little pep talk about how everyone can do something. Well, were there punchlines in this? I mean, what, what made it so darn dangerous and subversive and fun, memorable? What were your secret ingredients, Kimberly? I think I can't take credit for all of it. Half of it was take the, some. <laughs> half of it was just the antics of the representatives themselves. Oh, really? Okay, and you knew what to do. You we, were ready. We, we were not <clears throat> expecting certain things to happen, but for example, for the most yes. part, we expected to meet with staff staffers who are you know probably younger than I am in, in twenty one to twenty four years old. And that's usually how it goes. You might have a meeting with a staffer for five minutes. Sometimes it's on in the hallway outside the bathroom. That's how these DC meetings go sometimes. And we fully expected that to happen. But about 30 seconds before we were <laughs> going to be in the meeting, uh, the office person said that we're meeting with the representative themselves. And so that was a shocker. Okay. Had to mentally prepare ourselves, but we were not prepared to be meeting with them for a single, uh, uh, an entire hour, because usually these meetings are 30 minutes max. And <laughs> it's hilarious that that this representative was so, I don't, I don't know what it was exactly, enthusiastic or passionate, wanted us to stay there, left to go vote twice. And came back to... And came your... back to meet with, yes. Wow. <laughs> and we, well, that was... Super nerd night. No, yeah, I never expected that. So, so I, during the nerd night talk, I was just talking about that. And um, although that was a big highlight of my experience, the whole fellowship at the National Academies was amazing. I got to work with all kinds of people at the federal level in science policy, and it was it was the best experience. So anyone who's thinking about going into science policy, who's in the PhD program, highly recommend the Merzion program. Okay. So you've taken this to some other successful bar talks, though, and uh, about climate change elsewhere, though, right? This, this wasn't your only, this was not a one nerd stand. Well, there's no nerd night in Orange County. Right, right. But I mean, uh, other, other kinds of disarming kinds of Settings. Yeah, I was on this show a few years ago. That's right, you were. Yeah, yeah. I know, but we you were there up in Sacramento. We, we had two people in the studio, and you were up there. We couldn't quite, sometimes there's something when we're not in the same room, we can quite sort of uh, opportunity to snark our way through some of this sort of thing. Um, so we want you to talk about, too, where in advancing Earth and space science with the American Geophysical Union, talk about how you're equipping researchers there with tools for more effective communication. Right. So this past year, uh, from April 2018 to April 2019, I had the privilege of being part of the first cohort in this program hosted by American Geophysical Union. 
the program is called Voices for Science, and basically it's it's a an outlet for researchers who want to either improve their communication skills or to get support or just to be surrounded by others who do the same. So I had really, really amazing cohort members who are just top-notch at science communication. And so as part of that program, I did monthly, usually it was more than monthly, but at least monthly engagement activities. So that ranged from um, me hosting a science policy workshop on campus, how to engage with your policymakers. I also um, applied for a grant with Union of Concerned Scientists to send students to Sacramento to do policymaker meetings. And actually, I'm in the midst of getting that all sorted out and sending them off next month. Um, I had a, a session that I convened with some cohort members at AGU fall meeting, which, by the way, is like their their event of the year. There are over 25,000 people, I think, every year that attend that. So we had a session wow. um, about bridging the gap between science and science policy. That was really awesome, too. And just a bunch of other little things. Um, resilience Dialogues also was really great. How was that? Um, it's a federal climate adaptation program. Okay. Uh, and it pairs local communities that are struggling or facing climate impacts uh, who want help with climate action planning. And so Resilience Dialogue sort of matches them up with subject matter experts. So I was helping the city of Winters, California. They're struggling a lot with wildfires that are happening every year now, uh, extreme heat, drought, things like that. And so that experience was really great as well. So that takes you way out of your drought management research. You're, you're really becoming a, a generalist in capturing all of these speaking opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I take as many speaking opportunities as I can, honestly. That's the key. That is the biggest takeaway. Always take every opportunity for public speaking. That, that was Actually, that was one of the big takeaways I got from my urban planning graduate school. So you're you're always pressing beyond what you've been doing here with, with Stanley and you know, all those projects there. So there is Science Policy Group putting on this Thursday, the 11th. Yeah, so the... Uh, in there was on the 18th, you already had one. On this week, April 11th, is going to be another science policy group. So March 18th, the science policy group and I think SACNAS and GPS Biomed had hosted this UC-wide science policy symposium, which was really great. Lots of people talking and lots of topics. That uh, was so, so cool. Yeah, so I was at that, and that's where I saw Claudia again. Um, and this Thursday, in two days, April 11th, I'm hosting a workshop um, it's actually not part. It's not. It's not part of Science Policy Group, but I do invite people who are interested in science policy to attend. How to engage with policymakers? Eleven thirty to one thirty, at the Social and Behavioral Sciences Gateway, fifteen seventeen on campus. So, you, and so, who do you want to see show up? It's a science this. policy workshop for graduate students, and it's how to engage with your policymakers. So, if there's a graduate student who wants to talk about their research or just talk about science-related things that are um, important to them with their policymakers. I break down a lot of different things. I've actually hosted the workshop before yeah. last month, and uh, we're doing it again because we couldn't get everyone who wanted to sign up. So, Okay, so that getting a good turnout's not been a, a problem. I guess and it just gets easier. More and more you're getting more visible, bigger profile, and people see your success and they want to 
improve their games. Yeah, I, I hope it's going to be really inspiring to people who want to start out and, and try this. And it's kind of scary at first, but I think having an example of someone who was able to, <laughs> to do the PhD and also engage in these other types of projects it can be done. And uh, you've got models here. There's tenured faculty that never got involved in this special message kind of uh, improvement process and get involved in politics and policy and that I mean because they're, they're getting involved in both of those. So it's I think that they're leading by example in that way. So the most important thing we can accomplish besides showing where message can be as important as the substantive areas that you're working on, tell us about. What's the dream job you'd like us to uh, send you packing in September after you defend your dissertation? Well, my dream job is probably not going to be my first job, but eventually I would like to be climate and water science policy advisor, hopefully at the federal level, maybe at the international level. Um, when I was younger, I thought about well, wouldn't it be great to work for the IPCC? The yeah, it would be great. It would be great. <laughs> the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And now that I've sort of experienced um, the academic life, I've I realize that there are lots of qualified scientists to be part of the IPCC and much smarter than I am. And I think maybe my contribution is best in the science communication policy world, where I can kind of bridge that academic work with actionable policies. So I was so glad to get a uh, recommendation for a title. It's called Houston, We Have a Narrative Here, you know. And so it's sort of how also that's another area is to bring a science undertaking and dramatizing that. So there's a story to be told that would advance literacy in greater understanding of that essential science problem before us, which they're in spades. Well, so good luck. Anything more you want to say pitching this PhD degree at the audience? I'm graduating in September, and I would really appreciate a job. <laughs> Kimber Duong, UCI PhD candidate at the School of Engineering. Thank you for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. That's my wrap next week. Shahir Masri is speaking of uh, communications and science. He's going to return next week to the climate action awareness raising trek he's going to be doing this time, heading up the Pacific coast. Then, in the second segment, Daryl Akon will present the Long Beach Opera Justice themes in their current season and the role he'll be singing in Anthony Davis's world premiere, The Central Park Five. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm -hmm.